This is an AMI podcast. Hey guys, welcome along to the weekend edition of Double Tap. It is Saturday, it's the 29th of April, 2023, and today we're discussing six months of must. You're listening to Double Tap, your daily accessible technology show. Now, here's your hosts, Stephen Scott and Sean Priest. I wonder if at this point people have found the button to stop the show. <laughs> They're probably going, no, not again. I don't want to talk about this guy. Please, Stick around. It's going to be interesting. It is. Well, of course, the whole thing is interesting. That's why everyone keeps talking about it. Yes. <laughs> Um, how can one man make a difference? I remember we used to have a debate about this on the show. You know, how can one man make a difference? Well, it seems he can make a difference, all right, because absolute chaos. Uh, Mayhem. But, but the key is to have, you know, one man and $44 billion. Yes. Uh, that's, I guess, the bigger part of this, really, than just the one man Ooh. fact, right? Yes. So, yeah, six months. It's been six months. It feels like so much longer. I was talking about my anniversary the other day. Uh, yesterday, in fact. And, you know... I'm like, oh, it's not been 10 years, has it? Really? Wow. And now I'm feeling like the relationship I've had with Elon Musk has yes. felt longer than my marriage. <laughs> that feels like 10 years yeah, it and does. it's only been six months. Yeah. It's like he's always been there now. But it's, it's because it's just all the time. It's just different. It just seems to be 180 U-turns and, and different changes and you know, the polls that don't seem to be adhered to. It's, it's a roller coaster ride, if nothing else. Yeah, it is. I think he's taken a lot from the Trump playbook, I think. You know, it just, how can I get myself in the news every single day and, and every single way? That was Donald Trump's thing through his whole life. You know, he's yeah. done that. He done that when he worked and lived in New York. He did it as president. And I think some people have thought this is a really cool idea. Just constantly be in front of the news. I, you know, he doesn't shy away from it. I mean, if he was the kind of guy to shy away from it and say this isn't about me, guys, it's about the the platform, he wouldn't be on the platform all the time. But he is, and every tweet he puts out there, you know, ends up meriting a headline. And I think that's maybe a question we need to. You know, I, I, it's very easy to get drawn into it all and say, oh, he said this, and and then he said that, oh, and then he said this other thing. And actually, I think maybe the media needs to calm down a little bit on that. You know, I remember the first time I ever remember seeing tweets in the news. And I thought, this, why, why is that becoming a thing? This is just someone, someone's opinion. Someone who, you know, we're just alerting the world to one person's <laughs> thought at 2 a.m., you know, it's, which doesn't mean anything to anybody else, right? It's, it's just an opinion in their, every other opinion. On any news program now, there's always something like, you know, Tell us what you think. I remember listening to a parody, like a comedy sketch show, and they did a parody on this sort of new show. Tell us what you reckon. What do you reckon? It's like in 280 characters, tell us your in-depth thoughts. And it was just like, basically, does it really matter? Um, yes, people put far too much importance on it. But then, you know, when some someone of of his influence, I think that's it's it's fair to shine a spotlight on it. I mean, hey, we're we're doing a whole episode here on Musk. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, he's a very interesting guy and he has a lot of power. He does, but I, you know what? I'm, I've called the episode Six Months of Musk. I mean that from the perspective of him at the helm of Twitter, but I don't really want to focus on him and all of his own machinations and whatever else has been going on over at Twitter. And of course, all the other stuff he's doing at SpaceX and Tesla. How this guy has time to sleep I don't know. I, I don't know how that works. Mm. Uh, and whether you think he's a genius, whether you think he's an idiot, whether you think he's someone who should be nowhere near social media, whatever you think of him, we are where we are six months in, and it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. But I think the bigger point is, when Musk took over, there was a lot of talk of that was it for Twitter. It was finished. It would die a horrible death, and that was it. People would leave the platform would be defunded, essentially. Advertisers would walk away. And in the last six months, a lot of that has happened. A lot of people have gone away. There were, there were stats of about 450 million people using it. Now it's done to about 295, if you believe the stats. You know, one could be too high, the other one could be too low. You just don't know, right? But yeah. these are the numbers we're playing around with. That's mm -hmm. what I'm reading. So, you know, 450 down to 295 million advertisers have walked away. Some of those have started to come back. People did leave. People came back. So there's been a lot of to and fro on this. 
And I think the question mark is, is Twitter bigger than Elon? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think Twitter is definitely bigger than Elon. And it's kind of proven that because despite all the challenges, despite all the talk, a lot of people still come back with, the people who are still on there, come back with the point that they stay because the platform is important. The platform is important. Now, let's just maybe segregate this for a second and talk about disabled people and just disabled people. And it's funny because I just say, you know, why is it shows read out tweets? Well, that's what I'm about to do. Um, people, <laughs> because I did ask on Twitter, I, I put out the question, you know, we're within six months now of Elon Musk at the helm of Twitter. You know, from the blind perspective, what's your feelings about the platform today? And why did you stay? So lots of people got in touch uh, and two particular names who we're going to hear from today. Uh, and we're going to go back a little bit because six months ago, we talked to Poppy and Teresa about their experiences. We're going to hear them at the time, talking about the news of Twitter getting rid of the entire accessibility team, which we'll get into. Um, and of course, that was a big area of concern for disabled people. But just to sort of start things off, let's look at some of these tweets and messages. Why have people stayed? Uh, well, Tracy says, there are many people here that I still follow and want to see their tweets. As for being blind, she says, I use the app on the phone and it's still the same as it has been. So no major changes there. Tim says, I don't agree with many of the policies by Elon or how he treats staff. However, many of the people I follow are still here. And that goes back to that point, doesn't it, about it, the, the platform's bigger than Elon. Yes, you may not like him, but the platform is bigger than and important to a lot of people. It really was a place where people could gather, could get together, find each other easily, connect. Still is. And it still is, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to kind of take it to there, and, and I want to really bring in this point around the, the staff, because really the first big change that happened when Neilon took over was the staff cuts. 80% of the staff were let go. Huge Very number. Massive Huge. number of people. And you can get into the discussion on, well, the platform still continues and it still goes on, and yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. It's, it didn't com- collapse completely with all those people gone, but a lot of people did lose their jobs. Let's focus on that. And in particular, let's focus on the accessibility team. Again, I'm segregating a little bit here, but talking about the disabled community, for those of us who have been banging on about accessibility for years and years and years and talking about the importance of it, we were so pleased to learn that the accessibility team had been formed at Twitter, a very small team of people. It was not a big team. Uh, but it was there. It was working. It was helping in a number of different ways, not just accessing the Twitter app, which, of course, was important for a lot of people, making sure it was accessible, uh, making sure the platform is accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, and, you know, things like when Twitter spaces come in, that captioning would become a thing and, you know, that more yeah. people could access all that, all that stuff, larger text on the app, contrast options, dark mode, all those things that were you know problematic before. All that was, you know, eventually was fixed and the whole platform became more accessible. But more importantly than that, the Twitter accessibility team were able to advocate as well. So they would push messages like, remember to alt text your images. And it kind of taught a lot of people about what alt text is. And we can never forget the amount of work that was done just in that alone, teaching people that you can put an image up on Twitter, but if you don't tell people what the image is about, it's, it means nothing to a blind user. Yeah. Now, of course, we are nowhere near the levels we'd like to be when it comes to alt text. And I think ultimately what will drive the decision for people to put alt text on their images is when they realise that it actually helps artificial intelligence, <laughs> not blind people. Yeah. I'd rather help a robot than a blind person. <laughs> uh, but that's the truth of it, because we now know that OpenAI, for example, is sucking in millions of images, billions of images, actually. And they're looking for images with alt text tags because those alt text tags help create the picture for the AI and also teach the AI. So interesting. Anyway, huge, huge work done in terms of advocacy and really put, put the word out there in a really public way. So we lost a lot when they, when they were disbanded, when they were sacked, when they were let go, whatever way you want to put it. They were let go and it was a horrible thing. So I want to kind of go there because Poppy, who I spoke to at the time, she was very upset about it, as a lot of people were. The news had just broken. The Twitter accessibility team had been disbanded. And I wanted to get people's reactions. So going back to, you know, 2022, early point, or midpoint, actually, of 2022, when this was all happening, 
This is Poppy telling us her thoughts and her feelings on the news breaking of Twitter's accessibility team being sacked. Pure grief, I have to admit. It, it, it was almost, um, it feels like a really messy breakup almost. I mean, so much of not just my life and my career and my foundations in so many areas of life, but also my community and my friends have shared those similar experiences. And I think especially watching like friends from the accessibility team get dropped overnight <laughs> that's terrifying um so it almost felt just like, like a grieving um and horrendous frankly <laughs> um i feel that there are no words for it really hmm. it's tough isn't it because obviously accessibility is something we have been pushing for as a disabled community for so long uh in every walk of life and every application and every situation we we push for more accessibility and i think that I've certainly said for a long time on my shows that I often worry about accessibility just being literally the rug being pulled out from below the team and, and that's it, it's gone. I wasn't expecting not just the rug, but the whole team to go with it as well. Um, and that actually is quite worrying, isn't it, that that can happen in 2022? It's terrifying that there's a standard being set too, um, that we're making this progress and it's taken years and years. I mean, I was on Twitter over a decade ago before there was even accessibility in mind and the stark contrast between then and now is just incredible. Like leaps and bounds have been made. And for that just to be like with a click overnight taken away from us is just, I can't get my head around it. And I also don't know how it's legal to be quite frankly. But in saying all of that, you want to stay on Twitter. You want to stay there and continue to post and continue to, I don't want to say support the platform, but support the people who are on the platform with you, who you, you know, friends, people you've come to know, this community that you've built up around you. I think um, my day-to-day -day life, just getting through the day is almost an act of resistance for me, being chronically ill, living in the times we are. Um, disabled people don't want to be seen, they don't want to be heard, and just existing is enough. And I think that also rings true for social media and sticking for, to our guns. I hate that saying, but it's true. Um, what we've created and what we've built, it shouldn't go the way of the night. We should stand our ground. And I also think there's a case to be made for those who are unable to switch to other social medias, we can't leave them behind. Um, I think it's, it comes on selfish roots. I understand wanting to switch because it's overwhelming and you don't know what the future is like and it's better just to, you know, drop all your eggs and go, <laughs> if that's even a saying. Um, but it makes you think, should we be leaving behind those who have no other option for social media, who will be um, isolated further by people jumping ship from Twitter? And for me, it's a case of just sticking out. I also, I've seen Twitter go through lots of different changes and it's always, and this is definitely the scariest, I will admit, even it has me quaking in my boots. Um, <laughs> but I think it is a case of sticking out and it's an act of resistance to do that because how can we let go of something that we've built and curated and with so much care and empathy and thought? The question is, what would Elon Musk have to do for Poppy to say I'm out? Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Um, that's actually a really, really good question. I think potentially limiting my community and in some way harming them further. We have already been harmed, obviously. But I think perhaps I've heard that they're going to potentially um, deactivate accounts that haven't been used in like 30 days or a year. I don't know the exact criteria, but if it became more like that, I also think if harassment gets worse, obviously we've seen the news over the last week about the amount of awful slurs being used. Mm. Um, I think if that became the normal and just like the expected um, lifestyle on Twitter, that would have, if that's going to be the future, then I don't think I want to be part of it, frankly. Um, it's just ethics <laughs> and morals. Like, I just can't. Um, frankly, we're not there yet, but Potentially, yeah, it could get it could get to that point, but I'm very um, stubborn. <laughs> so that was Poppy talking to us uh, last year, and she tweeted actually. She said, "I can't believe we chatted six months ago. I totally eat my words now. I didn't expect it to be this bad." Uh, and really, yeah, That's I think interesting. that really interesting. I mean, I thought it was the, the, her comments there were the perfect spotlight on the dilemma. Mm -hmm. I mean, her, the impact of the sacking of the accessibility team for her, I mean, that seemed huge. She was, seemed really affected by it. And so the question is, okay, do we leave our solidarity with those sacked accessibility workers? 
you know, or do, uh, at the same time, are we happy to leave what we built? And if we do leave, does that sort of justify or validate that decision to get rid of the accessibility team? Because, well, we, we don't need it. That's not really a use case. I mean, do we stay there and shout, we need accessibility and, you know, for, for, in the future? I, it's it's a really good comment. I, I loved Poppy there. Oh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, everything she said, I agree with, and I actually probably still agree with to, to some degree. There's a lot there. I still agree with what she says, but she um, doesn't. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and we should definitely pick up on that with Poppy. I would love to know what she thinks now. Yeah, I, I just and, and I would have got into that today, but I, I kind of wanted to more focus on the past today, mm-hmm. just because yeah. we're at this point. I mean, we, we could have gone on and had that conversation with Poppy, but I. I feel that's maybe for another day. I feel it's important to recognise where we've been. And, you know, what I think came out of all of this for me personally was a real understanding of how people feel about this platform. Up until then, I guess, and maybe it's an age thing, and I think it is an age thing for me, and I guess you're the same as well. There comes a point, you know, Twitter came quite late in my life. It was 2000, yes. what's 2007? That's and, something that, that stood out for me. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Well, I was just, just going to say, you know, from the, from the point of view of, you know, it was so kind of late in my life. It wasn't a major part of my life. It felt like a gimmick. It felt like a thing that, mm-hmm. you, you know, people just did. And it felt, I remember people saying, oh, it's a fad. It's like, a, you know, it's like Friends Reunited or it's Friendster or <laughs> Bebo or MySpace, you know, it'll come and it'll go. And that's how people felt because the internet wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't, we weren't drawn to the internet in that way. Not to the same extent we are today. I mean, we live on our devices today. We live online all the time. You know, I was growing up at a time, you know, when the internet, you had to literally plug in the wall, you know, dial up. You had to dial a number to get online. And And tell the rest of your family not to pick up the phone. Yeah, don't pick up the phone because I'm (laughs) I'm trying to do something on the computer. And then your mum would, you know, your mum would get a phone call and that'd be it. The whole thing was screwed. Yeah. You know, so it, it wasn't as vital as it seems to younger people. And Poppy's clearly younger than me and you. So, you know, she's grown up with this to some degree. This is a big part of her life. And there was a point she made there about active, I think she said active resistance. She Mm -hmm. was talking about her day-to-day life. And I think that's something really valuable to talk about in this because when people talk about the value of social media, and again, I I kind of learned this through Poppy and Teresa, who we'll hear from in a minute, um, that that really for a lot of us, and I guess I'm there now, or some days just feel so much of a struggle that you want to delve into something else, just be around other people who kind of get it. Like you and I will talk a lot, you know, we'll go on to maybe some platforms and we'll talk and, you know, you kind of discuss the challenges and, you know, just be with like-minded people. Right? Yes. And, and social, me- social media gives us that, gives us that opportunity. It and does. I find that really good. And I will say as much as I'm, you know, I, I've said what I've said in the past about Mastodon, um, I feel a little bit of that with Mastodon. I feel a bit more closer to my people, if that makes sense, on <laughs> there. Does. Because there's just so many people around who I, I'm connecting with and I'm connected to, I'm feeling a bit more of that community sense. But my challenge is, and my issue with Mastodon, is that it's not necessarily reaching the wider community. It's siloed off a little bit. And I know I keep saying this, but it does bother me. Because I don't want to live in a silo. I love being with friends and I want to talk with friends and I want to be open with friends. But I want, like this show, you know, I, we don't just send this podcast out or radio show out to people who are blind. You know, if you're, if you're sighted, you know, the radio just scrambles for you, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you know, I want right. everybody to hear this. I want everybody to hear our stories, our, our conversations, because... It's the only way we'll ever educate people. People who always talk about wanting to advocate and get the word out in, in the same way want to almost silo themselves. And I don't think that's the right approach here. So, you know, I think it depends what you want from social media. But, you know, what Poppy was telling us is that she feels she met people. She was able to connect with people who are similar to her. But again, she could be in a place where other people could join the conversation, could learn from that conversation. And I think that's important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the fact she said she remembers a time when Twitter, when accessibility wasn't even thought about mm-hmm. on there. I think that is important. I think people get complacent. I, I mean, I can't even remember Twitter, to be honest. I'm not active on it particularly. Um, and it's always been, okay, kind of accessible. It does what I need it to do. I've never had any major issues. So 
I think I'm a little bit complacent. But if you were no, on no, it no, at I don't time, think you are. No, I think I think what you're like me. I think you know. I I kind of got into Twitter because of my work. Yes, I saw yeah. it as a tool to get news, to get information about you know the, the disability community, the blindness community when I was at RNIB, and then more you know laterally more about tech and tech news, and I could follow all the big. You know, tech companies and tech media That's and right. just find out yeah. what was going on. So it was like a news aggregator for me. It wasn't really a social thing yes. for me. But I think that's an age thing again, because we didn't grow up that way. That we, we communicated by actual phone calls. Remember those? Actual phone calls? Yeah, uh, no. Text messages are more, you know, <laughs> even that feels new to me some, sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a different thing. I, I want to bring in this comment. This is from, because uh, we, we, we spoke to Poppy. We also spoke to Teresa. And Teresa uh, shared her thoughts also with us on uh, the news of the Twitter layoffs. Let's hear what uh, Teresa had to say six months ago to the show. So when they when it first became clear that the layoffs would be you know imminently coming to Twitter, I was fully expecting there to be cuts to that team, but I was completely taken aback by reading that it was the entire accessibility experience team. I feel like. We've definitely seen indications that efficiency and getting things out quickly is going to take priority over creating products and features that are done well. And I think we all know that accessibility, you have to do a lot of testing and a lot of time goes into making sure that those products and features serve the entire audience. So I was expecting it to be a lower priority on their list of you know things that they were going to be focusing on in the future. But I definitely was not expecting them to cut everybody whose focus was accessibility. Look, many people use social media for many different reasons, but it is clear that the disability community gets a lot out of social media in lots of different ways. What does Twitter mean to you? So I uh, started losing my vision about eight years ago. And during that time, I learned really quickly that digital spaces just were not designed with my needs in mind. It was and it was something I just had not considered as somebody who you know spent my life fully sighted for the most part until suddenly I wasn't. So for me, I always appreciated that Twitter, they were a little slow to start off with to embracing accessibility. But as soon as they realized how crucial that was, they made it their mission and they made sure to take feedback for things that they were doing. And I'll say that I think they just made the experience so much better for those of us who, especially during COVID, were trying to find a community or finding people to stay connected with. So it it I spent so much more time on there and I met so many people on there that it would have been a very isolating experience without it. What was your experience of connecting with other disabled people outside of Twitter? Was there any kind of potential for that for you or did you feel it was all online? For me, it's mostly been online. I think some of that is because particularly for people where maybe their disability isn't as apparent I think there's still a lot of stigma behind it. So people try to pass as though they are not disabled. I think that people are starting to embrace it more now. But especially for me, when I would go to my eye appointments or go to my doctor's appointments, it would be going there. And, you know, if you added up the age of me and my husband, that would still be less than the average age of all the other patients there. So I might have been finding people with similar conditions to mine, but not those who would understand my specific needs or kind of how I was dealing with it. So I've definitely struggled finding people my own age or having ways of getting to them in person. Uh, so just having the internet and having those digital communities has meant everything the last few years. Yeah, I hear the phrase often, finding your tribe. That's yes. the Yeah, that's, that's the kind of way of thinking of it, isn't it? That you found a group of people who you can relate to, who you can communicate with. And that's really important. But I think also beyond that, it's good that we have that conversation in the public square, in the town square, as Elon Musk likes to call it. Uh, you know, that's not a bad thing in some cases, right? Because then those conversations are open, they're public, they're for all to see and engage in, uh, which can work in our favour and can not as well. But ultimately, I think, you know, having that space is good. It's good for all of us, right? Yes, absolutely. It's 
and it, I find it very interesting, like I said, talking about it being a town square, um, but then thinking about, you know, that town square is made up of disabled voices. And it's I this is where I struggle so much with not, you know, I have my own personal feelings about taking away the accessibility experience team because of the impact it's brought to my life. But it's frustrating that that seems like there's a clear culture shift that we want it to be a town square and have people participate in these conversations, but maybe not the disabled people as much. We're not going to make sure that they have the information to participate in those conversations. And I agree with you. I've seen other people talk about leaving to different social media platforms, and I've had my own internal debate about it, partially because if you think of the people who are using Twitter, the people who are signing up for these platforms, that's essentially, you know, that audience, that's the content, that's the currency right there. And that's what brings those places value to advertisers or to people on the outside. So I am having my own internal debate about adding to that value when I know that my my concerns or what I need from it is not going to be a priority. But at the same time, I've talked to a few friends about just their feelings on it. And I think we're all in a place where there does not, like you said, there does not really seem to be another type of social networking that would make it as easy for us to find each other and support each other in the way that Twitter has because of the way it's laid out. And I also think with the with the accessibility experience team being gone, they did such a great job of educating people about accessibility. And from some of the comments I've seen in replies to tweets I've made since this has happened, there's still a lot of people who do not understand accessibility. And so even though it should not necessarily be our responsibility to do that education, I think that Twitter will be a much worse place if there's not those of us who are advocating for it or talking about it and being very vocal about it. So I feel like there is a small level of responsibility we have to each other to making sure the people who are still not understanding what accessibility is, just helping them understand why it's important, why it's beneficial, and that it's not something that you can just put out onto the website and it's like, oh, they they did accessibility. It's done now. They can be fired. And there you go, Teresa talking six months ago. And I don't think anything Teresa said there uh, really has changed since then till now. Uh, and I don't know if I would say it's gotten worse, but certainly it, it feels like she could have said this yesterday and it would have felt the same. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the whole finding your tribe and connecting with people, I think that, that Mastodon, I mean, our recent experience with Mastodon, right? It, it's... It's fine. It's fine. Um, but I think that that whole being an advocate and, and challenging other Twitter users' viewpoints when it comes to disability, I think that's an amazing point that can't be overlooked. Mm -hmm. If we all vacate en masse, then what's left without the accessibility team? I think that's a really fantastic point. The argument of of our communities that are built up there. I mean, okay, we could, you know, pack up and move on to another social platform, and there are others out there. But I think that's a fantastic point. Advocacy. Yeah, but, but the whole point about picking up and going somewhere else is that you pick up as a group and go somewhere else. Yes. The reality is, though, that the group, first off, will not all move. Mm -hmm. And the group that does move as has happened with Mastodon, will migrate onto its own world and other people may not be able to get in and see what's going on. Again, I have this outside view problem with this. It's that, you know, I like the conversation in public. And I think that's important. That's why I, I, I feel like I'm driving an agenda and I'm not. I'm genuinely not. I just, I'm not against Mastodon. I'm on there. I think it's a great platform for people who want to be on there. But I don't think we can kid ourselves that you're siloing yourself off and that, if that's what you want, that's fine. But you've got to recognise that's what you're doing. Yeah, And no, you're, I, you're not going to get I'm the same sure. kind of engagement as you will, especially the numbers. I mean, it's like one and a half million people on there versus of, yeah. 295 million. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm there's, sick of the argument about one person up. makes a difference. It's like, I think 295 million can make a difference. <laughs> and especially if you've got exposure to them. I, I think the fact is that Twitter isn't going to go away. 
I don't think it's ever going to go, yeah. go go away. And the fact is that I think we need to be represented on there. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be on there um, because of the incredibly poor decision to get rid of the accessibility team. Actually, it would give us more reason to be there and, and to claim our place and to fight our fight. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And there's so many analogies to this that kind of go with it. Like I know people, for example, who don't vote because they can't vote independently in this country, in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, they won't. Yep. They just don't vote, and I have real trouble with that because I think, well, it's like, well, wouldn't you rather have a say in the picture, in the bigger picture? I know that it's maybe not a secret ballot to you, but it's not like the person who's helped you with this is going to run out into the street and start shouting who you voted for. And I could care less either way, you know. So it's, it's that kind of thing of you know. <laughs> Be part of the conversation. Don't don't just dismiss the whole thing. And I think that's that's where I land on it. Look, stay there because we're going to come back. And we're going to talk more generally about social media because I think there's what has come out of all of this in the last six months of Musk is a real discussion around what social media is. It was already there. It was already a discussion topic. But I think Elon Musk has really driven the question home more to more people. What is social media and what is it for? And should we be concerned about its future? We'll get into all that next. Follow Double Tap on social media at Double Tap On Air. And subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And email us feedback at doubletaponair.com. We'll be right back. This is Double Tap. Now, back to the show. I want to pick up on some of the comments uh, following my question on Twitter about why people were staying. And uh, interestingly, Teresa and Poppy both got in touch uh, to tell me some of their thoughts. Uh, Sarah also says, uh, organisations for blind people are here and lots of people I like to follow as well. So I stayed. My biggest frustration is that lists do not load reliably. The algorithm has become pretty dodgy, so I rely on lists now. Sometimes it is fine and other times only about 20 messages load. Uh, Callum says the way the staff have been treated, the way third-party app developers were cut off with no warning or explanation, and obviously the firing of the accessibility team is dreadful. However, my general experience on the platform hasn't changed. Uh, Pranav writes, for me, it's just because the people I follow are on here, and it's one place where I can still be me. Alex says, because I have not found any websites easier to use yet, Twitter is still Twitter with a few more bugs but nothing preventing me from using it. And Connor says, the reason I've stayed on this platform is because there are just lots of blind people I want to connect with. Jordan says, keyboard shortcuts work, and that isn't changing anytime soon. And Siobhan says, I've agreed, I, have ch- I have achieved a good following on this platform, which is why I've stayed, because I want to continue raising awareness about blindness. This platform enables me to reach an audience and people I wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Great point. And that sums up for me, All of those. to be yeah, perfectly honest. Point. Yeah. So here's the big or bigger question, I suppose, out of all of this. Um, social media itself. Um, is it just a toxic place? It doesn't really matter what platform you're on. I mean, we talk about Twitter as if it's the only social network, but there's Instagram, there's TikTok, there's Facebook, there's loads of other places people go for social media. Uh, and I just wonder, you know, is it just that, we forget there's people behind this. Algorithms push content to people. They certainly serve up content, you know, that they want you to continue engaging, you know, with the platform on. So therefore, they, they feed you up all this kind of data based on what you're watching and reading. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people are at the heart of this content, right? It's not the bots creating the content yet. <laughs> well, okay. In some cases, maybe. Mm-hmm. So... It, it, you know, I guess the question is, is it the people that are the problem or the social media? Well, I when mean, we talk about tox- toxicity, if you like. Toxicity, it's always a reflection of you know, greater society, uh, social media. And mm. I think it is very individual how toxic you find it. I mean, I recognize there are real harmful places in every social media platform, but it doesn't really affect me because I, I tend not to get drawn into that if i see something attacking me or or, or criticizing me or being overly harsh i can quite easily ignore it um but that's 
you know, that's an individual thing. I know for some people it can really affect them. Some people are very sensitive, and I don't mean that in a bad way, like that's a flaw. I mean, that's just how they are, and mm. it can be really affecting to them. And there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about the harm to people in, in, in uh, who, who are depressed or, you know, self-harming groups has, has come under a lot of um, scrutiny on social media, rightfully so. And these are down to the algorithm. If you do go down a bad path on social media at any point and start looking at content that isn't that can be harmful to you isn't helpful to you you the the, the danger is that you will be um presented with more and more of the same content and i think that is that is definitely an issue but i don't think it's, it's it, as a general rule i don't think social media is overly toxic to anything else where you have a, a group of people to be honest well I did discuss this in more detail with uh, Fern Lullum, host of AMI Audio's original podcast, Into You. And uh, I, I talked to her about this topic last year. Kind of around the time, actually, we were just learning that Elon Musk may be about to buy the platform. And Fern talked to me about the reason she feels social media can feel and become toxic. Essentially, the more outrageous you are, the more attention and engagement you get. And this isn't necessarily a new idea. You know, we've seen this in the press for years. You've got to have a hard-hitting headline that makes everyone go, hang on a minute, I need to see what this is all about. And that is essentially the same principle which is now happening on social media to where if people say things that are really shocking, that really provoke people's emotions, those are the things that are getting the most engagement, which the social media companies love, because that's what they're all about. And so that's the things that we're getting fed. So it looks like it's everywhere and it looks like it's across the board and everyone that we see is doing it. But actually, it's just the few people that we're being shown because that's what the social media algorithms and threads are feeding us, I think. And I watched a video about this where they were talking about an American study that showed that tweets with moral, emotional words in, so things that really get you all fired up, um, they perform 20% better. You're more, you're 20% more likely to retweet tweets with those kind of words in than you would any other tweet. And therefore, of course, like I say, the, the social media companies want that engagement. And so that is what what you're getting fed on your news feeds. And that's why we're seeing these shocking, outrageous, what, you know, things with very provo provocative language in, because that's what we're being fed, because that's what works. That's what works on the screen. If people aren't retweeting it, if people aren't sharing it and liking it, who cares, really? What we have to remember is social media is just merely a tool and we are people who are using that tool. And I think we need to take back the responsibility for how we're using that tool, what we're saying, how we're going about it. And like you, I'm not somebody who will never call anything out if I don't think it's right. But there is a certain way of doing that that means that you come across in a different way. You, you don't just come across as somebody who only will talk about the negative and who only will see the outrage and the anger in things. You can be nuanced. I think, like I say, though, the, the difficulty with that is if you're in it for the likes and the follows, you're less likely to do it in that nuanced way because that's just not simply what works on social media. But I think you can do that. But it's just you've got to be in it for because this is the right thing and I believe in it and I'm not going to cop out rather than I'm doing this because I want all of the engagement. It's interesting on social media how we are probably more careful. Certainly I feel this. I am more careful about what I retweet. I'm more careful about what I say. Um, and it's not necessarily because I have views that are abhorrent in any way. <laughs> but it's just that, you know, what is abhorrent 10 years ago that we're now deciding is, you know, enough to get you cancelled. Yes. Who knows what that's going to be in 10 years' time, right? So you're almost second-guessing yourself. Whenever I send a tweet, I am second-guessing myself every single time. Do you do that? I think, yeah, I think you do have to because not only, even if you're saying the nicest thing, the thing about having it written in such a short you know, short form way is that it can be taken out of context. It can be twisted. People can see things in different ways. 
And that makes it very, like you say, worrying because I, and I'm always second guessing myself just in general, in normal life. I'm one of those people that can't even send an email without reading it through to, you know, five different people and making sure that it, all the commas are in the right places. But yeah, social media, absolutely. You just think, oh God, am I saying something here that somebody is going to be deeply offended by either now or yeah, like you say, years in the future. I mean, we're both famous celebrities, Stephen. People could come at us. <laughs> well, you can speak for yourself. I, I can't possibly <laughs> comment on that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm one of these people. I, I grew up, I don't, I don't want to ask how old you are, Fern. I would never do that. But, you know, I'm, I'm 40 uh, this right. year. And, you know, I didn't grow up with social media. I didn't grow up with any of this stuff. Uh, and, and I tend to look at it as a bit of a joke. I still, to this day, even look at it as a bit of a joke. I'm still amazed that people quote tweets and talk about Twitter as if it's the most important thing in the world. I even laugh when I hear the phrase historical tweets. I think, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember before Twitter. What does that mean? Me a dinosaur? Um, <laughs> but, you know, the fact is that it, to me, it just doesn't seem that serious. But how how serious is social media? How much does it really matter in the real world? I think it does have a big impact. And I think part of that is that, you know, we are, we have that kind of view of, I can't say that I've been deeply upset or angered or some emotion has come to me because I've read a tweet or I've seen something on Facebook or on Instagram, whatever it is, because we think we're going to be seen as pathetic. You know, people are going to be like, oh, get over it, right? Mm. But at the same time, clearly this is making people angry. This is affecting people's days. And I can talk from a personal point of view when I say that, I have had lots and lots of experiences where I'll go onto social media five minutes before I'll be absolutely fine. Life's, you know, a breeze. It's, it's, you know, I've got a few problems here and there, but it's generally okay. And then I will see something and in an instant, I, it's like a Dementor has come along and sucked my soul. I am instantly saddened and my mood is down and I'm snappy and I'm irritable it, it, it just, it does happen and it does have an impact not only on our lives, but on everyone around us as well. I'm very aware of that. You know, it's so interesting hearing Fern talk about all this. And by the way, check out her show, which is just brilliant. It's all about relationships and dating and things that she's I know great. nothing about. Um, yeah, she's uh, on AMI-audio. You can check out the podcast and the YouTube and everything else. Uh, it's all at ami.ca. She is absolutely fantastic. Um, but, you know, one thing she talked about there was, of course, the the reality of getting the likes, getting the comments, you kind of have got to ramp up a little bit in order to get in front of people. And I think that's the bit that a lot of us struggle with because we kind of just want to tell our stories and move on. And then people want to hype up whatever we've said. I mean, I've had it. I've had this personally. I've had comments I've made, which are so benign, so pathetic, so boring. And then people want to amplify it in some way to a ridiculous level just to get the comments and the likes because that's how you get the attention on the issue. And that's not great. It doesn't help the cause because it can make you look like you're just out for attention or you're blowing something up for the sake of it and not actually really doing any major advocacy at all. I mean, I'm talking specifically around disability advocacy here. Um, you know, it's just a really diff it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because you, 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 one thing we for sure cannot have on social media is a nuanced and complex conversation. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's just social media. This is a culture shift, isn't it? The, the clickbait headline. Um, this is just everyone is vying for attention. There's so many. It used to just be, you know, broadcast TV or radio. But thanks to the Internet now, everyone's got their own little platform, be it their own website, their own forums, their own groups, their own email list, whatever it may be. And there is a lot of um, a lot of people will do things for attention. That is right, because likes, numbers, they they do matter. Um I don't. I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I am just very choosy, and I, I do recognise the clickbait. And it doesn't matter if that's a, a tweet or a Facebook post or an article headline. I, I tend not to, well, fall for the bait, basically. But it, it is really tricky, and she is absolutely right. It it it, it does work, and that's the problem. That 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 those those um, contentious posts 
do draw a lot of attention. And that, at the end of the day, is what they're designed to do. And how, do, how so they work. What do you do about that? I don't know. You're absolutely right. It is a dilemma. I am very much, as I've said before, I think that the days of, of being anonymous on the internet, I think that causes so much problems. People have far less responsibility about what they say. I think if we all had our own internet passport, if we all were <laughs> nailed down to our own identity of our own presence, digital presence on the internet, I think we would. it would be a far better place. But hey, I don't I, think I, that's going to happen. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but it, it, although it might, but I don't think it matters. I think that particular horse has bolted. You know, there was a time when I remember back at the beginning of Twitter when you had the egg phenomenon, you know, where people were just eggs. And what that meant was that the Twitter, the Twitter bird essentially, because that's the logo, uh, the, the sort of default image on each of our profiles was an egg. Yes. Just a, a, no, a blank picture of an egg, really. That was it. Just a yeah, no egg. one bothered to put their profile. It's like any Facebook uh, <laughs> request I get that has no about you info in it. No yep. school, no education, no employment. Yep. Yeah, uh, sorry, I, I'm not adding you. Yeah, excuse me, I don't have any skills, education or employment. I don't have anything <laughs> like that in mind. Is that why you don't friend me on Facebook? Okay, yes. now I understand. Yes, that's right. But, you know... The interesting thing is that, you know, at that time, there was a lot of talk about this, that, you know, if people, you know, had to use their own name, it would change. People would be, you know, would, would be far more responsible. People would be aware of what they're saying. I think that has changed. Now, I don't think that's unique to Twitter. I don't think it's solely the responsibility of Twitter. But what Twitter started and what other social networks started, like Facebook, was the ability for people to be more like themselves. And I think on video platforms, people are way more upfront than they ever would be. And remember the days when you would, if someone was recording you with a camera, you'd be horrified. Today, people love it. They play up to it. It mm. becomes like the, the big deal, you know, and, and they don't care if people recognize them. And it's maybe only when they're seen by their employer and their employer pulls them in and says, hey, by the way, we don't really tolerate that kind of nonsense. You're so right. you're out. Yeah. Maybe then that starts to hit them, but it's not, you know, the, the social media companies and their responsibility on society and how society acts, it, it, it's just the fuel. That's all it is. It's just the fuel. It in no way is ever going to be able to turn around and try and police this. You know, how can the fuel, how can the, the thing that's pushing everything forward, how can it be the resistance? It just can't. Well, you say social media's responsibility to society could also be flipped around. Social society's responsibility on social media. Well, that's right. Yes, and it's, and that is something, as you know, I am a strong advocate for personal responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I'm a big believer in freedom of speech. I think that you know everything comes with responsibilities, and you know you know people say to me often, it's amazing the amount of people have the discussion when it comes to free speech with me that they say, well, you know, free speech uh, until this point. Or until someone says this, or until someone... And I often think, yeah, but that's the whole point of the responsibility side of it. If you're held responsible for what you say, if you decide to talk about Nazis or you talk about, um, you know, racism or, you know, sexism, whatever it is you do on social media, you should be held accountable to the laws of your country. That's just that because the laws exist for that, right? So there are laws, there are rules in place that deal with that, you know, um, but that is not to say that I want to live in a place where it's rampant all over the place on social media. But at the same time, it's if you bury it, if you put it somewhere else, if you take all the people and put them somewhere else, does that make it any better? Do you think people become less racist when they're not saying they're racist? <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, there's yeah. a real challenge here. And this is well, not about media. speech and action, isn't there? And it, it's, such, it's such hard work. Going back to my internet passport uh, oh, really legislation that I, I am going to bring in when I'm king of, of the world. King of the world. Uh, I mean, look. Uh, Free KFC for all. Uh, hey, you've over, overstepped the mark. Your internet access has been revoked. Now, what the trouble we're having, and we've seen so, so all the time, is where is that line, right? But for me, I think it's it's perfectly obvious in, in cases where people are threatening other people. We see it all the time. We had Gamergate a few years ago, mm. where women gamers were having the most vile 
tweets and attacks and threats made to them. And that, that that's carrying on today, even with female influencers, streamers, you know, on Twitch. Absolutely disgusting. To me, that is an obvious line. That is a threat of violence. And that, okay, you're doing no good to anyone. Your internet privilege needs to be revoked. And that's what I think we're missing. The people's opinion on whatever is an opinion, and that is free speech. But when we're talking about actual threats of violence or any criminality like that, I think it's obvious that those people should be removed because that is so harmful. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I get where you're coming from. I think that my biggest concern around freedom of speech argument, which is ultimately where this all leads to, is that I just don't know who who, who decides what is okay to be said. Who makes that decision? Me. Okay, fine. That's that solved. There Next. we go. Problem solved. <laughs> no, it's 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 an unsolvable problem because whoever says, "Oh, well, he seems reasonable," they seem reasonable. There's going to be someone shouting down in- incredibly loudly. No, that's not fair. I need to be heard. I will He's say, never going to make everyone happy. One thing we talk a lot about, of course, artificial intelligence, and this is, I guess, the final point. You know, looking forward. I think AI could have a big impact here, potentially, in that, that content uh, moderation. Because if AI, I mean, one thing we've learned is that, you know, people individually, there's just not enough people around to be able to manage and moderate the amount of content that exists on social media, not just Twitter, but every platform. This is maybe something AI could do right. But again, of course, it depends who's training the AI and what mm-hmm. they're training it to do. So, you know, is there really a perfect solution to this? I don't know. Can people just be nicer? That'd be nice. But you're not going to get likes and clicks. So what do you do? And we're back to square one. And this is yes. the problem. The problem is social media. Uh, but one thing for sure, six months of Musk, if I was to wrap it up in a nice little bow and say, what did I think of it all? I'd say... Nothing really has changed. Not really. We've made it a lot about one guy, but not a lot really has changed. Social media is still the cesspit. It always was. And nothing really massive has changed. And it's also still the great place it always was, depending on how you use it. And there we go. What beautiful, beautiful wrapping that ended up in. Gorgeous wrapping. And it took us nowhere, but, you know, enjoy it. Or stay away from it if it's harmful to you. Exactly. There. Just stay off it. I think that's probably the best bit sometimes. I certainly feel that. We haven't even gotten into the subject. Let's just throw away it, all the tech. How it, it becomes addictive. And yeah, I mean, it, honestly, it's just, yeah. Anyway, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. We are back again on Tuesday. We'll be talking all about... What are we talking about on Tuesday? I can't remember. It's going to be great anyway. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Hable 1. That's what it is. Hable 1. Yes. Uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, that. Uh, lovely uh, listener, John Carpenter. Uh, we replayed that review for you. And we'll also hear our conversation we had with uh, the developer and creator of the Hable 1. At least one of them, anyway. Uh, he joins us on uh, tomorrow's show on tuesday's show if you're listening to this uh, on the podcast and on ami audio thank you so much for listening we'll be back again soon thanks sean bye-bye love double tap did you know we're on the tv too check out brand new episodes of double tap tv on ami tv every tuesday at 8 p.m eastern or binge on all episodes online at ami.ca forward slash double tap we're also on youtube search for double tap to catch our episodes there too Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.